Welcome to the 283rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Stephen Kiernan, author of the new novel, Universe of Two. Before we get into my interview with Stephen Kiernan, I have a brief excerpt from the audiobook of his new novel, Universe of Two, narrated by Cassandra Campbell and available wherever audiobooks are sold and published by Harper Audio. Stay tuned for this brief excerpt from the audiobook of Universe of Two. I met Charlie Fish in Chicago in the fall of 1943. First I dismissed him, then I liked him, then I ruined him, then I saved him. In return, he taught me what love was, lust too, and above all, what it is like to have a powerful conscience. On first impression, Charlie was weak-chinned. To my girlfriends, I might have called him a milk toast, soft as an old banana, which only goes to show how smart a 19-year-old girl is about anything. Now I know better. It turns out the greatest kinds of strength are hidden and move slowly and cannot be stopped by anything until they have changed the world which he did twice. I am not exaggerating. I was there on both occasions. One time I helped him, and the other time I heard him. I hadn't intended any harm, but there is no denying that I used my influence to make him do terrible things, irreversible things. He forgave me. That was in his nature, but I haven't forgiven myself. Even now, all these many years later, Some deeds are like tattoos, and the ink of regret is permanent. How did it start? As innocently as the chiming of a bell when a shop door opens. I was in the back office when I heard it ring, letting me know a customer had come in. At that moment, I was frustrated, opening a shipment of sheet music for the high school chorus Christmas show. It was goosebumps chilly in the store, because we rarely had customers till afternoon, and my mother wanted to scrimp on heat. But it wasn't the cold that bothered me. It was the company that we used for sheet music supply. Their prices were the best and their delivery the quickest. For some reason, though, they triple-sealed their packages, using that thick brown packing tape with the bad glue smell, so that it was all but impossible to get them open. Like breaking into Fort Knox, just to get the four-part harmony pages for jingle bells. Mr. Kulak, the high school principal and choir director, would be in to pick up the sheet music during his short lunch break. It was 11.30 and I was nowhere near getting that package open. Anyone here? The customer called. Be right out, I hollered, which my mother would have said was not satisfactory customer service, but then again, she was never the one who had to deal with that tape. It was amazing that life during the war continued with that much normality. To me, Chicago seemed starstruck. Movie matinees every Saturday after we closed early, they swept me away. The follies coming through town. Boys home on leave who would squire me around, their best pal toting a friend of mine too. We'd go to a show with them in uniform and us in patched up nylons, feeling grown up. In spite of whatever high jinks they might have been dreaming of, all those boys really hoped for was a decent good night kiss, which I gave, 
easy as a penny. What did it cost us anyhow to allow them that? What with what they were going to be facing? Some of my friends wouldn't smooch a soldier on the first date in case he got the wrong idea or they got a reputation for being fast. But I would have kissed a hundred boys in uniform just to give them something about home to dream on while they went and did the world's worst job. Still, there were plenty of days that the world felt upside down. So many boys were gone in the service. My brother, Frank, the born natural at fixing cars, he'd enlisted at 19. Now he was stationed in England, working in a motor pool. Who knew when we'd see him again? Far worse, we all knew families who had received the horrible telegram. Some mothers would never be the same, like Mrs. Winchester, the best soprano in our church's choir until her Michael came home in a coffin and she didn't sing anymore. Some fathers became bitter and silent, like Mr. Winchester, who perched on his front stoop and glared at people like he was daring them to start something. Sorrow was in the air. Sometimes it seemed like half the people in that city were walking around with broken hearts of one kind or another. So maybe a package I couldn't unwrap was a small complaint. Maybe I was self-absorbed and unaware. But what did I know? My life was so small then. I had no idea. I'd tried peeling that tape off with my hands, only tore off an inch or so, and it made my fingers hurt. I found the big scissors, but they barely managed to snip off the extra strip on one corner. Still, I was determined. Anyone here? The customer called. Be right out, I sang back, not much concealing my annoyance. Then the big scissors slipped, and though I pulled back quickly, the point of one arm jabbed me in the forefinger. Damn, I grunted, though louder than I should have. Is everything all right? The customer asked. Is there some kind of trouble? No trouble, I sang out before jamming my finger in my mouth, sucking the metallic taste of blood. Be right there, I completely promise. Cursing in front of a customer? My mother would have wrung my neck. But she was off at her Monday war wives luncheon, not due back till one. I straightened my skirt and stopped before the little mirror to make sure I was presentable. A lock of my hair had come out from its comb, dangling in front of my face. I was in the middle of arranging it back into place when I heard the chord. In the olden days, they used to have trumpets come out and play a fanfare before the king spoke to shut everyone up, I suppose. And plenty of paintings of angels have cherubs making music in the background whenever something big is happening. This chord? It was a hallelujah, a call from the heavens, or at least from a guy who knew what an organ could do. Because I scurried out of the office, and there he sat at the Hammond Spinet model, our entry-level instrument. He didn't choose the church model, with its classy cabinet and 32-note bass pedals. And Doobie's music did not carry the concert model, because it was too glamorous and expensive to sell in Hyde Park. What I saw, a fellow, skinny as a breadstick, wearing oversized pants and perched on the spinet's throne with his eyes closed. He had his left hand on the low manual, right hand on the high manual, left foot on the bass note, right foot on the volume pedal, 
announcing for all the world every bit of the meeting and grandeur of a G major chord, fully voiced, with all the trumpet stops open. I know which key it was because I have perfect pitch. It's not a talent. I was born that way. Maybe this is an advantage when sizing a customer up by what chord he plays first, but I promise it is an affliction at the Christmas show when they sing, May your days be merry and bright, and on that high note all the sopranos go flat. Well, well, the skinny guy said, opening his eyes as he switched off the organ. He turned to me with a grin like a ten-year-old who'd just unwrapped his Christmas present. Not bad. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Stephen Kiernan, author of the new novel, Universe of Two. Kiernan's previous novels include The Baker's Secret, The Curiosity, and The Hummingbird. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be with you. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, Universe of Two, yet, how would you describe the novel? I would describe it as a love story, and it's set in 1944 amid the development of the atomic bomb. You could say two young lovers who are up against uh, one of the biggest challenges that humanity has faced. A young man named Charlie, who's a mathematician, math whiz, who gets inducted into the Manhattan Project, not knowing what he's going to be working on. And his sweetheart, Brenda, a musician who's kind of a bossy girl who just tells him to get over his qualms and get to work. At the end of the war, they both feel some culpability for what the bomb did. And so they send out to uh, find redemption and they do find it together. And so do you remember the original idea that led you to write Universe of Two? I do. Uh, I was reading an essay about an actual person uh, named Charles Fisk, and he was on the detonator team of the atomic bomb. And after the war, he dedicated his life to building organs, church organs. And, and when he died in 1983, he was considered one of the greatest cathedral organ builders in human history. And I thought that was a very interesting arc of a life. So I started out researching him and then realized that a novel was the way to tell the story. And that's how Universe of Two came to be. And I don't think we want to get too technical here, but you just mentioned that he was on the detonator team. I'm sure you did some research. Can you give us a little bit about why the detonator was different for a, a nuclear bomb than other bombs? Sure. Uh, think of it as the trigger. And you're the guy who's going to build the trigger. In fact, his nickname at Los Alamos, where they built the bomb, was Trigger. So there's a way in which he's sort of the, the pin. He's the linchpin. And um, and that means there's no avoiding, you know, he's not on the team that designing the outlaw, the, the alloys for the outside of the weapon, for example. He's got a very specific triggering kind of job. And so there's no denying what his work is going to accomplish. So what kind of research about World War II and the Manhattan Project and the development of the first nuclear bombs did you do for this novel? It was extensive, Jeff. I, uh, I read dozens of books, and um, I went to Los Alamos and went all around, everywhere I was allowed to go around, the uh, National Lab, which continues to develop uh, nuclear weapons uh, to this day. Um, I read self-published memoirs by the spouses of scientists and watched films of um, the scientists at work. The big surprise was that I had always thought everyone who worked on building the atomic bomb, was very gung-ho 
and really wanted to get this done as a way to end the war. It turns out that's not really how it was. People disagreed a lot, and hundreds of scientists wrote petitions and signed letters to the president saying, don't use this on people, demonstrate it first. And um, so I learned some sort of heartbreaking or interesting sort of dilemma stuff like that. And then I learned a ton of, of uh, you know, strange scientific detail. Um, like, for example, the, the, the first the, the bomb that was exploded, the Trinity test bomb, the detonator assembly was about the weight of a six pack, even I mean, of a case of beer, even though the whole thing weighed 10,000 pounds. Just the detonator part was was about 15 pounds. And inside that, there was plutonium. It would be about the weight of a dollar fifty in quarters. And when that plutonium is crushed down tight together and bombarded with neutrons just right, it has the explosive power of 18,500 tons of TNT. So there were a million interesting things that I learned along the way. Um, and, uh, and the research on this continues to this day. I'm still learning about it. It's a fascinating topic. And so you mentioned the scientists asking for them to do a demonstration. Was the thinking there that we would show the capability and then have um, our enemies, specifically Japan, stand down? Yes. I mean, you know, a lot of people, there were, there were scientists who, uh, after Germany's surrender, said, well, we can stop now because Japan doesn't have any kind of robust bomb development program. And, um, and by then, our aircraft could fly fast enough and high enough that no Japanese anti-aircraft could fire back at them. So we could bomb at will. And we were, we were firebombing these cities and so on. So, um, uh, so the idea that they had was if they went to a desert island somewhere and had a public uh, exposition of what this weapon could do, that it would cause the Japanese to surrender. Of course, it's completely speculative. We'll never know. What we do know is that uh, the success of the bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki prevented the, the Japanese invasion that was ex estimated to, to uh, take a, a million lives. So this book doesn't take a strong position for or against the bomb. It has characters within it who take strong positions for and against the bomb. And the idea is to have the reader think about this and, and feel it, feel it by, by, through these characters and, and come to maybe a deeper understanding themselves, all in the context of this love story. So what are your earliest memories of reading in books? In my life, earliest reading, readings? Yeah, sure. Um, yep. Oh, you know, the little engine that could is how I taught myself to read because the phrase I think I can is repeated so many times that I learned those letters. And I remember that specific book and looking and knowing that what I saw was, I think I can. Um, I, ever since, I've been a voracious reader and a precocious one. I was reading a, a, above, my, above my pay grade, even in elementary school. And um, so, um, you know, I probably still read north of 100 books every year. Try to hit 150, but that's hard to do. And um, so books are, have always been part of my life. And, and so what was your path to writing and publishing your first novel? Had you always wanted to be a writer? And what, what led up to writing and then getting that first novel published? Uh, you know, uh, I had always been a storyteller by personality. And when I was in high school, I thought that I really would like to be a writer. And I, I received the most valuable and constructive thing I could have at that time, which was vigorous parental disapproval. 
And it really inspired me and motivated me to do the best that I could. And uh, when I got out of college, having been an English major and done a lot of writing, um, I took a job in business, in computers, and was a guy who wore a suit and tie every day. But I got up early in the morning to write fiction. And it was I wrote a novel that was really pretty terrible. I think I've destroyed every copy now. I, every once in a while, another one will surface, and I think, how can I make that thing go away? But um, but what I realized is I couldn't serve two masters. Either I was going to be a writer or not. And so um, so I went back to school. I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was terrifically valuable for me. And um, and while I was there, I started working for a newspaper. So I ended up in newspapers for a bunch of years, and I was always writing fiction on the side. And and it was actually my fifth attempt was my first book that I got published. I wrote four that did not see the light of day. And um, so now I feel like it took a lot of years. It was a long apprenticeship, but now I'm I feel very fortunate that I incredibly fortunate that I get to live a, a novelist life and can really immerse in topics and spend years learning about them and tell stories for a living. So it was always in, in my sights, but it just didn't happen for a lot of years. And so what was your experience like at the Iowa Writers Workshop? I mean, at, at this point, it's. Uh, almost legendary how how was your experience personally uh well the first thing that i experienced there was humiliation or let's just say humility because there are a lot of people there with enormous gifts and um and i am not being modest when i say that i do not have an enormous gift um what i have is an enormous work ethic so i will write really lousy first drafts and revise and revise and revise I typically spend longer rewriting a book than I do writing the first draft of it. So what Iowa allowed me to do was immerse. Instead of getting up in the morning before a business job, writing was what I did all day, every day. I made spectacular friends, many of whom are friends to this day. And um, some of the academic life was interesting to me, but I'd been out of school working enough years that I, I wasn't much excited about going to class and writing papers. It was really an opportunity to write a ton. Also, if you think about it, you know, it was four semesters of 14 weeks pretty much adds up to a year. And if you think of one year of your life out of an entire writing life, it's a pretty small piece. But it was very valuable for me as kind of a transition. It was a place where it was okay to be a writer. And while I was there, I started writing for the local newspaper. And that was very interesting and engaging for me. And I worked in newspapers almost 20 years. Um, and that taught me a lot about story. And I spent a ton of time in sentences. I wrote millions of words for newspapers because you had to turn it out every day. Um, I loved Iowa as a state. I'm from New England, and so I had an, an Easterner snobbery, and um, I had a comeuppance because Iowa was a lovely place, beautiful place. And um, there are days that I miss it because of the quality of the air. Um, and the most importantly is that now there are, I have good friends who are writers who I rely on to read early drafts and whose guidance I trust. And uh, so I think very fondly on that time. So you mentioned this first novel that you wrote that you said you try to track down any copies that surface. What was bad about that novel? Oh, that's such a great question. Let's see. Um, I didn't know how to write a novel. So I didn't know about things like proportion. How big should a moment be? How long should I take to describe this? 
How do I leave enough out that the reader will imagine the things that occur? It was a book that was aggressively political in its point of view, which I think can be fatal to a story. Um, I think there were there were more like it was more like a, a a good versus evil sort of story as opposed to individuals struggling with their own fallibility to try and live well and properly. And um, I think it was vivid. I think it was overly long. I think I was pushing the story in certain directions instead of allowing it to unfold. Um, but there are things I loved about it. The point of view was really fun. And uh, it was called The Wall of Silver. And it was about a waterfall and a fight over turning that waterfall into a hydroelectric dam and uh, in a little Vermont town. And, um, and then I wrote What We Could Have Had. And then I wrote Leaving the Country of My Birth. And then I wrote, what, uh, well, there was one other one in there. Oh, Moonlight Sonata. That one was okay. That one should have gotten published, I think. Um, and then I published a couple of nonfiction books from my newspaper work. And then that led to the novels that I've enjoyed writing ever since. Great. And what was that experience for you the first time that you um, had your first novel published and saw it on a book and uh, saw it on a shelf in a bookstore? It was you know, up there with just below the births of my sons in terms of great days in my life. You know, I published my first novel, I think at 52. That's a long apprenticeship. You know, that's a long time to be working toward a goal. And I, as I said, I had millions of word in, in words in print, but, but um, I had uh, not, not my fiction. The other thing that was terrific is that, um, you know, the best-selling author, Chris Bojalian, is a very dear friend of mine. He's also a very dear human being. And it turned out that his book, The Light and the Ruins, was scheduled to publish on the same day as The Curiosity, my first novel. And I thought, well, great. It means that, you know, we're both going to have events the same day and everyone's going to go to his. Um, and instead, he invited me to join him for his launch and the first nine events on his tour. And so I got introduced to hundreds of readers all over the country. I got to watch one of the most skilled and experienced presenters to readers that there is in, in action. And, um, and it was a great way for me to learn about the privilege of book touring and getting to meet audiences and to get to know bookstore owners. And so it was doubly exciting, both because the book was coming out and because of Chris's kindness. But the thing I'll tell you, with all sincerity, you know, tomorrow is the official publication date of Universe of Two. This book was enormously difficult to write. It took me twice as long as any other book. And, and now it's coming out in the weird circumstances of the pandemic. And the thrill is undiminished. It is every bit as exciting for me to have Universe of Two come out tomorrow as it was to have The Curiosity come out years ago. It's still a thrill. That's wonderful. So what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are working on their own stories and novels? Well, I guess, you know, everyone has to find their own way. But from finding my way, it was recognizing that I did not have much talent, but I had a great work ethic. And so for me, the most important thing was was to not stop was to always write. I know a lot of people who embark on their first novel and suddenly years and years have gone by and either they've they've not finished it, <clears throat> excuse me, or they've they've uh, 
uh, rewritten it and rewritten it and rewritten and not been able to get it published. And, and what I think is you just start your next thing. You just, you know, you write a book and if it's no good, you write another one. And so, you know, I had written, I don't know, a million words of fiction before I published a novel. It's just, you keep at it. And, and uh, Marvin Bell says, the poet Marvin Bell says, writers are people who are helpless not to write. And so if you have to write, then don't stop. Just keep going. And, um, and don't, get, don't spend a decade on one idea. Just finish it. Go do the next one. All the time, people ask me, you know, if I'll read their work uh, that they're working on. And I say, I will. The moment that you finish, and I bet I've said that a thousand times, and twice the person has taken me up on it. They actually finished the book. And one time, the book was unbearably bad. And the other time, the book was terrific. And I blurbed it, and it came out, and it did pretty well. And I was very happy to be the first reader of that. The point being, it's about a kind of a persistence, a way of life. And, um, and if you are fortunate, then, then if you're enormously fortunate, then some publishing success will result. But if not, you still will have had the gratification of writing and telling those stories. Great. Well, are you working on another novel now? I am up to my eyeballs in another novel and it's quite interrupted by the uh, important and necessary work that you do before and when a book comes out so that readers will find out about it. And um, <clears throat> it is a story of three men who are flying in a small plane um, in uh, the, over the wilderness of Canada, and they have difficulty and have to put down on a frozen lake. It's the last week in January, and there's a big cold storm coming, and they've got to find their way to safety. Um, and there is a, a tracker who is the best kind of hunter and tracker in that whole area who is hired to go find them. Um, and it happens to be a woman and she's, uh, her relationship with the forests is nearly spiritual. And so on the one hand, it's their survival tale. And in another hand, on the other hand, it is a uh, kind of a love story to the planet. And it's supposed to be out in January of 22. And that right now feels like a long way off, but I'll be racing to it. In the meantime, I'm very happy to be bringing Universe of Two into the world, and that other story will wait. It'll be there when I get back to it. Great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, I'll talk about a couple, I guess. I mean, I, I, uh, I loved The Red Lotus by Chris Bojalian, which is a thriller that has a real tender side. Um, I just finished two books, which are also coming out tomorrow, and I got to see advanced copies. Um, one is With or Without You by Caroline Levitt, um, which is just a really interesting story about how a couple grows in time and under duress. And um, The Lions of New York by Fiona Davis, which is a great story set in the New York City Public Library, which is a building I've worked in and really and really love. Um, and the book that's next on my stack is You Again by Deborah Immergut, which is about a middle-aged woman who keeps seeing a younger woman who looks an awful lot like a younger version of herself. And uh, so those are all kind of the books that are exciting me right now. Great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Oh, I'm very annoying. I'm PH version of Stephen. I have a website that is Stephen P, my middle initial, Stephen P. Kiernan. K-I-E-R-N-A-N um, dot com. And they can find me there. I'm on Facebook. I have a personal page and an author page. Instagram, I have a personal page and author page. I'm on Twitter. It's all Stephen P. Kiernan. And, um, and I really 
cherish my interaction with readers. So if your listeners, uh, you know, feel like sending me a note, tell them not to be shy. I, I'd love to hear from them and uh, carry on conversation. One of the things I do every uh, November is I, I, to show my gratitude to readers, I produce something, I write something called Winter Tale, always a story about the seasons. And I've done it for about 15 years now, and I just give it to readers for free, put it up on all those different places I'm in social media. Just my kind of um, thank you for this very charmed life that I'm getting to lead. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Stephen Kiernan, author of Universe of Two. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Stephen, thanks for doing this interview. Real pleasure. Thank you. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast Special Offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.